Amen. Good morning. I want to invite you to turn to the second chapter of Ephesians. We're going to finish up this chapter and a, a larger section, kind of verses, chapters one and two together. We're kind of wrapping all of that up before we head into uh, chapter three next week. And what I want to do is I want to read uh, the unit that we're finishing today. That's verses 11 through 22. And I want to give us some background to remind us of where we've been in these last two chapters, chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians, and then we'll focus in on the text today. So this will be up on the screen, but I want to read to you from chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made with flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I felt compelled to remind us today to whom this letter was written. It was the church in Ephesus. And we could very easily say Paul is writing to the church in Murfreesboro. So, now this may be a little uncomfortable for you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? That's the gospel. And when we hear that, we automatically think it's evangelistic. We want to talk to non-Christians about that. And for sure, we do. But Paul didn't write this letter to non-Christians. He wrote it to the church. Why did he write it to the church? Because they weren't living out the truth of the gospel in everyday life. So as we listen to these words, let's not 
push it away as if it, it might not really apply to us or, gosh, I sure hope there's a non-Christian somewhere in the room or online that might hear this and come to Christ. I hope all of that. But, but I actually thought today, like if there is a non-Christian, if there's somebody in the room that isn't in a personal relationship with Christ, we're glad you're here. If you're watching online, we are so glad that you're joining us. I want you to think of this morning as an opportunity to listen in to a family huddle. This message is for the church. This is a core text about the doctrine of the church. And if we don't get this, then why in the world would we have anything to say to anyone in the world? Paul is addressing the gap between the faith that these people professed and how they practiced that each and every day in the community of faith. John 10.10, we're told that Jesus came that we might have abundant life. And what Paul has been laying out in these two chapters is what that life really looks like. He talks about our need for life, right? Dead in sin. He talks about how we get that life by grace through faith. And then he talks about the sweeping implications of having that life and living that life in Christ each and every day. He does talk about the implications of this life for us. And the first thing he mentions is peace. And that gives us some insight as to why he wrote the church in Ephesus to begin with. There was a stubborn spirit of division in Ephesus among Christians. Now just imagine, what does the world think about that? What does a non-Christian think about a bunch of Christians who are fighting all the time, who are hostile toward one another, who are unkind and condescending? What does the world think about that? Is that at all attractive? Paul wants them to live out relationally what God has declared true of them spiritually. When you trusted in Christ, he said, you are one with the person to your left and the person to your right, if they've trusted Christ as well. And that isn't just a spiritual reality. That ought to show up in how we do life together each and every day. Paul uh, gives us three categories for humanity. Jeff introduced this to us last week in his section. But we have three categories, and you'll notice the outline's a little bit different this morning. I've got some shapes and pictures and all that. I just figured there's got to be some artists in the group that would love to scribble or doodle or whatever. Um, Feel free to use this however you please, but uh, I'm going to work through this and uh, jot notes wherever. But these three categories are at the top, Jew... Saint is in the middle and Gentile uh, to the right. Jews were described as near 
and Gentiles were described as far. And all that meant was, in all of humanity, God chose the nation of Israel, and they were considered near because the Lord gave them some very specific direction about how to know Him, how to live life, and how to reach the world. So they were given some information that not everybody on earth was given, but the assumption was if they were to really embrace that and live that out, then as God promised to Abraham, all the families of the earth, all the Gentiles who were far off, they would be reached and blessed and brought into the family of God. So the problem in Ephesus was that Jewish believers who were near felt superior to the Gentile believers. And the Gentile believers basically had an inferiority complex. But they were divided, hostile toward one another. Can you imagine coming to church and you see old Bob or Bill or whoever, and you know that you're a Jew and they're a Gentile and you're like, I guess I could sit on the other side of the room. That's what Paul's going after is that division. Paul takes both groups back to the truth of the gospel. He's saying both groups came to life in the very same way. By grace, through faith. Same process, same need, same solution. Both had to believe the gospel. Now, having believed or trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, Jews and Gentiles joined a third group within humanity called saints. Now, unfortunately, over the course of history, that term has been horribly distorted. When you hear the word saint, I'm guessing that you think St. Patrick. I mean, I love to think of St. Patrick. Um, you, right? You're thinking of all these spiritually elite, those Christians who somehow we're not quite sure how, but they arrived at some level of spirituality and maturity and fruitfulness that they ought to have that special term to describe them. And nothing could be further from the truth. This word universally rep, uh, represents the company of the redeemed through all of history, even prior to Abraham and the nation of Israel. Literally anyone who entered into a trusting covenantal relationship with God, they are a saint. And so these Jews and Gentiles, when they placed their faith in Christ, they just joined that large group of people throughout all of history called saints. So if you're a Christian today in this room, guess what? You're a saint. Maybe I'll just start referring to you that way. Saint Michael, Saint Elizabeth, whatever. More specifically here in this text... Because of the cross of Christ, Paul says they entered into a new group called the one new man, the one new humanity. 
which is really just a reference to the church. So you uh, got to get this. We've got this big category called saints. Those are all of the people who have been redeemed, who are right with God. After the cross of Christ, because you had Jew and Gentile and that split prior to the cross of Christ, now you have a third category into which both Jew and Gentile believers enter. It's called one new man. Jeff mentioned that last week. So no Jewish Christians, no Gentile Christians, just saints. Those are the only ones who are in the one new man. There's no room for hostility or rivalry, just peace. Write down Galatians 3.28. Paul says there, For all who have put on Christ, which is just another way to say, for all who have trusted in him, placed their faith in him, for all who have received Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all of those distinctives, those ways that we mentally divide ourselves from one another, and honestly, how we elevate ourselves over others, all of these distinctions, those are erased in the one new man. Saints, they're they're Outward distinctives don't matter to God. He simply sees them as his children. This got me to thinking about our divisions. How do we do that? Because I I don't know that any of you typically walk in here and think I'm a Jew or I'm a Gentile. But what about I grew up in a Christian home. And they grew up in a non-Christian home. I'm wealthy. They're poor. I'm in kind of a white-collar environment, and they're kind of in a blue-collar environment. Ethnic majority, ethnic minority. Speaking gifts. Right? Everybody in the church has been given a spiritual gift. Some of those are speaking gifts, Peter said, and some are serving gifts. Which one's better? Homeschool, private school, public school. That's a touchy subject, isn't it? Did you know that there are actually parents in this church who homeschool... Some who send their kids to private school and some who have their kids in public school. How about that? Mega church, country church. These are the ways we divide ourselves. These are the things that Paul would have said enough. There's one new man. And if you have trusted in Christ, then you are a saint, and that is all that matters. 
It doesn't mean that we lose our cultural identity. It doesn't mean that we don't have preferences and all of those things. It just means at the end of the day, they don't matter. They matter to the world because the world doesn't have anything else to hold on to for security and significance. But we have more. I have to wonder, why would anyone who, according to Paul, has every spiritual blessing and guaranteed eternal inheritance... Why would any of them place any real significance on temporal externals unless those external temporals meant more to them than the promises of God? Here's what God promised in the person of Christ. We're told in verse 17, Jesus came and preached peace. Not just for a minute, not just for a day, not just for a year, not even for a lifetime, but for all of eternity. He came and preached peace, and not just to those who were far off, also to those who were near. For through him, we both, here's another promise, have access in one spirit to the Father. Could there be anything better? God shows no partiality and neither should we. Romans 12, 3 through 5 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, that's, I think that's what Paul's trying to create here, is some sober judgment in the people of God. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We are different in a lot of ways. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That will get the attention of the world. When they look at a church full of people who are not like one another, who have all kinds of differences, but really walk as one, who do life as one. Well, after establishing the equal footing, all people have in terms of spiritual need and the path to genuine spiritual life, Paul gives three illustrations beginning in verse 19 with the words, so then. By the way, I heard a great little simple outline for this larger unit, 11 through 17 by Alistair Begg, pastor. Um, you may just circle these in your Bibles. But he said, here's three great little points to take you through this text. Uh, back in, I think it's verse 11, at one time. Verse 13, but now. And then verse 19, so then. He's helping them remember 
At, at one time, this is what was true of you, but now, great news of the gospel, so then, get to work. <laughs> Put this into practice. He is helping them grasp the implications of their corporate identity in Christ as his followers. Now, more importantly, I think, Paul seems to be addressing what we could say is the greatest need that humanity has, horizontally speaking, like all of us are built with it, and that is the need to belong. We were made in the image of our creator. We're told that in Genesis as part of the creation story. Our God is Trinitarian, right? Father, Son, Spirit, three in one, in perfect relationship with one another, okay? So we are made in his image, which means we were made for relationship. Belonging is all about relationship, right? So for us to long for that, that's as normal as breathing. And Paul is trying to say, hey, guys, you don't need to look any further, when you entered into that relationship with Christ, you began to belong to him. But it's, it's even better. You belong to a community of people who have all entrusted their lives to Christ and who all belong to him. Not just as individuals, but as a corporate body. That's what these illustrations are all about, is helping us grasp the significance of the corporate implications, not just our individual ones. So Paul links belief with belonging. Now, it's tempting here, given the text, and it'll be obvious in just a moment, but it's tempting to apply this text primarily to Gentiles, just because of the way that it's written. But keep in mind in verse 17, I just mentioned it, that Christ preached peace to who? Just the Gentiles? No, he preached it to the Jews too, right? To those who were far and to those who were near. Both needed to hear that message. So everything that follows applies to both. Jew and Gentile were both in need of peace with God and with each other. And both were given access to the Father in the very same way, by grace through faith. So, here's the three illustrations beginning in verse 19. We have a national illustration, a familial illustration, and a structural. National, familial, and structural. First one, in verse 19a, he says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, that's where it does point back to what Paul said about the Gentiles. They were called strangers and aliens earlier in the text. So certainly it applies to them. But at the very least, he's saying to the Jews, hey, by the way, the uncircumcision that you have thought about and how you've treated them, all of that, you need to know they are fellow citizens not with you, with the saints, which is a much bigger category than you. 
If you're a Jewish Christian, something more important, you're a saint. And a Gentile who has placed their faith in Christ, they're a saint too, just like you. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility, right? He's taking that away, making them into one new man. I want to highlight with a national kind of illustration, let's just think of them joining the kingdom of God. Now, we understand if you're a stranger and alien in a country, right? You're an outsider. You're, you're probably welcome there. You can enjoy some of the attributes of that culture, but you're not one of them which also means you have no real rights and responsibilities. Now, you have to abide by the laws of that land, but you yourself have no rights and no responsibilities while there. You're just visiting. That's how the Jews treated the Gentiles in regards to the kingdom of God. And God is saying, Gentiles and Jews, as part of one new man, Both of you have all of the rights and all of the responsibilities of being a part of this community of faith called One New Man. That probably addressed some of the superiority that the Jews were feeling and some of the inferiority that the Gentiles might have been feeling. Second illustration is in the second half of verse 19 says that believers of any and all backgrounds are said to be members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. I think this is maybe the most beautiful and powerful description that Paul is giving here. Uh, just jot down uh, John 1.12 and 1 John 3.1. John 1.12 says this, But to all who did receive him, that is Christ, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. I don't know what it's like to be orphaned. I know what it's like to grow up in a broken home. I know what it's like to be estranged from a father. To be called a child of the living God. I don't know that there's anything more important for us to understand. For our purposes today, I think we need to get the vertical implication of that. But listen. If you're a child of God, then that means you are a brother and sister with other children of God. And that's the problem. They're treating one another like stepchildren, like distant cousins, like neighbors. You're not in our home. That's the problem, and that's what Paul's getting at. All of you are part of, members of the household of God. We are family. 
So we belong in a national sense to the kingdom of God. We belong in a familial sense to the household of God. And then we belong to this unique community of faith in a structural sense. This structure is being built. The pieces are being joined together and constructed with enormous purpose that goes far beyond any individual part. By God's grace, we become part of something greater, more glorious than anything any of us could ever achieve on our own. There is such a beauty to the mosaic of the body of Christ that, that surpasses infinitely the beauty of any individual piece. Have you ever seen a mosaic? Right? If I just pulled out one little chunk and I showed it to you, it'd be like, oh, that's nice. But you see it <laughs> in a great cathedral? It's breathtaking because of how all the pieces fit together and the picture that they paint and the glory that they display of the one who made it. This structure rests, Paul says, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus serves as the cornerstone. Um, the reference to Jesus as the cornerstone points back to Isaiah 28, 16, and also Psalm 118, 22. But in Isaiah, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. That's the language that Paul is using here. And literally, he's describing a stone of testing. And, and the picture is when they built great temples or structures of any kind, they would begin with a single stone that was called the cornerstone. Every other stone in that structure was oriented to the placement of that cornerstone. Now, they're not all directly connected to it, like they're not adjacent to the cornerstone, but it's as if they are because every stone is adjacent to the one preceding it, which all goes all the way back to the cornerstone. You could think of in construction terms like a plumb line, right? You guys have seen, that tells us what's vertical. A level, right? The bubble never lies, you know, if it's level. A carpenter's square, that Make sure that you're at a 90-degree angle when you ought to be at a 90-degree angle. That's what the cornerstone does for the entire structure. And how did he do that? What, what are his tools to bring that kind of alignment? It was the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Very specifically, it's the special revelation that they received from the Holy Spirit, recorded on paper, and then scattered throughout the church. That's the cornerstone. That is what we are all to be aligned with to whatever degree that we can every day. The Holy Spirit gave that special revelation to 
the called out community, the church. The Greek, there is the ekklesia. It means called out ones. They were set apart. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, they are called the pillar and buttress of the truth. So we have a responsibility to make sure that anyone who comes after us is aligned with the cornerstone and everything that he has revealed about himself and his plan. Now, our community functions in contrast to the world. I said this a few weeks ago, but the world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 John 5, 19. And the world defies God in every way. With that in mind, we are not in competition with the world. There is no competition. Because actually what happens in this life isn't nearly as important as what's going to happen in the next. So what we do is we see a world that is broken and at war with God and we feel compassion and empathy and we plead with them, as I'm going to read in just a second. We plead with them to be made right with God, to cry out to him because without him, they are without hope. That's our function and Paul describes that function with two phrases. He says, as, as all the parts are joined together and built together, they, we become a holy temple in the Lord and a dwelling place for God. A holy temple in the Lord and a dwelling place for God. Both of those images speak of our calling. And theologically, God is omnipresent, right? He is everywhere present. It's a unique thing about God that's not true of anything else anywhere in the universe. And yet, he chooses to manifest his presence in, with, and through his people. Not just individually, but corporately. And there is something about the majesty of God that we display together that none of us can display on our own. That's this picture, this holy temple in the Lord. The temple wasn't made up of one block, was it? No, it's it's the collective. It's all of that together, made just right, that puts the architect on display. That's what Paul is calling us as his people, the saints, the one new man, the church. That's what he's calling us to. Display the beauty, goodness, majesty, splendor of God to a world that lives every day in isolation, belonging to no one but themselves. Paul sums up what this ought to look like, and I'm going to close with this in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 20. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, according to those external, 
those temporal externals. We don't, we don't look at each other that way. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a saint, a member of the household of God. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So Fellowship Bible Church, what are we telling the world about the kingdom of God? What would the world think about him and his redemptive plan based upon seeing how we do life and treat one another? I want to ask you to prayerfully Ask God to show you how you might better align your heart and your life. And I'm doing the same. I'm not just saying this to you. This is for all of us. How can you better align your heart and your life to the cornerstone as it relates to living in the household of God? Take a moment and pray about that, and then I'll pray for us to close. us to boldly enter into your presence and we're told here we have access all of us equal access into your presence so we invite you to hold up the mirror or show us what is true about us any of those places where we're out of alignment and then Lord would you change us Would you soften our hearts? Would you fill us with gratitude? Would you show us the delight that 
you have in seeing a unified people who are trusting in Christ each and every day. Lord, may this church be a beautiful display of the grace that you have lavished on each and every one of us. Lord, help us to love each other well. No distinctions. Great humility. Lord, do a good work in us. And then, Lord, help us reach a broken world with all the humility in the world. But, Lord, help us to speak, be ambassadors with the beautiful message of reconciliation. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.